A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. We're all getting first pumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, he made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now... Introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 11. Thanks for joining me. Go to inallairness.com for show notes and plenty more features. The social hub for the podcast is facebook.com slash inallairness. If you haven't already, please like the page and join the growing community of fans. Add the podcast to your RSS feed or iTunes so you never miss another show. It's also available on Stitcher, Blackberry, Player FM, TuneIn Radio and numerous other podcatchers. I love hearing from listeners. On either site, you can send voicemail, comments or questions. With your permission, I'd love to include your feedback on future episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. My guest today spent almost 30 years working with Chicago Tribune. He's now a columnist for Bulls.com. He authored the classic New York Times best-selling book, The Jordan Rules, and was recently inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame for his contributions to the game. Sam Smith, thanks for joining me. Sure. I'll add for myself that I've got an um, e-book version of The Jordan Rules out now. It just came out with a um, new chapter that's a behind-the-scenes story of the writing of the book and Jordan's response and a whole lot of things like that that I've never really talked about. So if anyone wants to follow up on that, I think... Uh, any, any any of those things that get ebooks, <laughs> I'm not sure I have one, <laughs> but I think you can get it on. That sounds fantastic. Do you mind just detailing a little bit more about what actually you have included as the extra chapter, please? Well, it was a very controversial book when it came out in 1991 after the Bulls. It was supposed to be a uh, essentially, it was just going to be a diary of a season with a team, and it turns out that the Bulls ended up winning their first title. But when I started it. They, they, they weren't. Back then in the late 80s and into the early 90s, the Bulls couldn't get past the Pistons, and, and it's probably hard for a lot of people to believe, but Jordan was viewed kind of as a, um, just a big scorer, you know, kind of like, a, kind of like maybe a George Gervin, and that he would never win championships because he was a leading scorer in the league, you know, sort of like Wilt. You know, Bill Russell won all the titles, and Wilt got all the scoring titles, and Jordan was viewed that way back then mm-hmm. uh, by Magic and the Bird and a lot of guys who were winning titles. Obviously, we know everything changed. But as far as the book and what I ended up writing, it was very controversial at the time, and it was viewed. I I didn't write it that way, and reading it, you wouldn't find it that way. But it was viewed as a negative toward Jordan, and you know, so there was a, a lot of controversy about his reaction to it, which I really never been written or talked about. So I went into that and. 
also the uh, genesis of the book, how it got going, and what were the ramifications and fallouts from it. So a lot, a lot of things that sort of supplement the story of that first championship season, which essentially the book was a diary of that season. I, I used to travel with the team back then. That's fantastic. So that's available now with that extra chapter on ebook. Yes. Great. I'll put a link to that in my show notes when I put it up online. Now, before we talk all things hoops, let's briefly discuss your early career with the Chicago Tribune. When you first started at the Tribune, you initially were covering politics and business. How long were you in that role for before the opportunity to write sports features came about? It was really serendipity. A lot of things happen in life. I worked in Washington, D.C. as a political writer from the mid in the mid-70s, about 75. I covered the uh, Carter, the Jimmy Carter administration, covered Congress in the White House. And then I moved to Chicago in 1979, late 79, early 80, and was doing some politics, mostly politics and national affairs, American and national affairs for the Tribune. Yes, I, I also did some business. I had a business major in college, which is why I became a journalist, because I was not a good business major. <laughs> and no, it really wasn't. I wanted to become a journalist anyway, and fortunately it worked out. And then when I uh, worked in the business staff for a while, they'd asked me to do it because I had this business background, and it was sort of a compromise thing, and then I did it for a while, and they said, okay, well, you did that, and uh, we owe you now. Uh, is there somewhere you, know, you want to go back and do your political stuff? I said, nah, I'd like to give sports a try. And this was about 1982, I think it was, and I wrote for the Tribune, had a Sunday magazine then, and one of the first stories I did I did on the mi- basketball minor leagues, which is then the CBA, and ended up going and spent the uh, weekend out in uh, Albany, New York, capital of New York, um, with Phil Jackson, who was then coaching the Albany Patroons because he couldn't even get an interview for an NBA job. And I got to know Phil, and he ended up a few years later on the staff of the Bulls as an assistant and eventually head coach. So and that was fortunate, and newspaper asked me to, uh, I had interest in basketball always, and played it as a kid, and grew up in New York City, and I saw, I went to Madison Square Garden all the time, saw Wilt play there, and Oscar Robertson, and Bill Russell, and all the guys who would beat my team, the Knicks, something familiar to me, and just out of good fortune, I ended up working around the Bulls when Jordan showed up, so essentially, uh, I started doing a lot of uh, Bulls work, uh, initially, sort of part-time, I know it's full-time with the paper, but as a sort of a backup to the uh, main beat writer for a while, and then became uh, the beat writer and the NBA writer. But I started pretty much around exactly when Jordan came to Chicago. So again, good fortune more than anything, being in the right place at the right time. Certainly was. Now, Jordan's rookie season was the 1985 NBA season. I've read that MJ was very accessible to the media in his early years with the Bulls. Can you please talk about your first meeting with MJ, if you can recall it specifically, and what experiences you had covering him during his Rookie of the Year season in 1985? And Michael, I always um, liked him as a man's man kind of guy. It was um, you know, just kind of fun to be around Michael. Everything was a contest from having the last word in a conversation, which Michael always pretty much demanded, to whatever. You know, if you were a good ping pong player, which one of his teammates was, you know, Michael went out and he used to get beaten and he went out and bought a ping pong table and kept practicing until, uh, you know, until he could get better. And so, uh, so it was just fun to hang around with him. And he, he, he really, you know, now because his celebrity has gotten so big, it's, you know, it's not practical for him to sort of mingle 
that much. But he wasn't the first pick in the draft back then. You know, all the teams were trying to get Akeem Olajuwon, number one. Um, I remember the draft in uh, when Jordan got drafted in 2000, uh, in 1984. And after the draft, the Bulls had had a series of terrible drafts. And Quentin Daly, who they drafted right after he had uh, pleaded to a sexual assault, and David Greenwood, who who they lost, the used to be a coin flip. They lost the coin flip. And the, the Lakers won it and got Magic Johnson, and they they got David Greenwood, Sidney Green, and uh, Ronnie Lester. One one bad pick after the next. So I remember when they picked Jordan Rod Thorne said uh, everyone because he was college player of the year, even though he averaged 17 points at North Carolina. But in 1982, he had that game-winning shot, won the national championship with the last shot. So they said, well, now we Bulls finally have a great player. And Rod Thorne, was the general manager, said, well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. You know, he, he's going to be a really good player, but he's not the kind of player that turns around your team. So, um, so in effect, nobody really knew, you know, back then. So, you know, he wasn't this huge, huge star. And, Back then, the media wasn't nearly as as big as an intrusive had certainly become. And uh, my first meeting with Jordan, I'd gone right after he got to Chicago. I think it was his first week in Chicago. I went to spend a day with him uh, for a you know feature type story. And I got to his. He was living in a what we call a townhouse, which is um, like a duplex, two floors, and a basement, uh, but attached to an, another building. And he had an ironing board out. And I kind of laughed, partially because I can't iron. And I said, what, what, what are you doing with an ironing board? Because, you know, he had his first contract, and it doesn't seem that big now, but it was uh, seven years, $6.3 million. So it was about nine, he was making about 900000 a year. And I was making, I think, twenty. So he said, no, no, I, I, I iron all my clothes. I said, uh, I, said I don't even know how to do that. He said, well, I took home economic uh, course in high school because – he said, I, I was always so insecure and always felt I was ugly and I never felt I'd be able to get married because you know, I wouldn't be attractive to girls. So I, I learned how to uh, sew and iron and cook and those things in high school class. So, you know, pretty regular guy, just just fun to be around. And I played golf with him back then and, uh, you know, because I'd, I'd gotten to travel with the team and dinner with him and just... You know, sort of just like you and me, except talented. <laughs> he could jump, and I mean, a spectacular player from the beginning. First time story with the first, and, and Rod Thorne had made all these bad draft picks, which I alluded to, and and uh, he missed the first day of practice when Jordan came to training camp, mm-hmm. and Kevin Lockery was the coach, and after the first practice, Thorne wasn't there, and Kevin Lockery called uh, Thorne, the general manager, and said, well. You finally didn't mess up the draft. <laughs> so, um, and we could see he was a terrific talent, and, and uh, you know, just just a very friendly, outgoing, you know, really a joy to be around. Yeah, some great stories there for sure. Now, Jordan went down with a broken foot early in the '86 season, and he missed 64 regular season games. But he wheeled himself back onto the team, culminating with his Herculean 63-point performance against the Celtics in the NBA playoffs. I've since read online that you said he, he was back in North Carolina during that time or, or close to his comeback, playing some pickup games in North Carolina. So how quickly were you working with the team during that season and, and what access to MJ did you have whilst he was injured? Well, I uh, really had none um, because he had left the team and went back to North Carolina. And 
you know, the rest of us were hanging around the team. Mm-hmm. The, team the NBA, you know, still required you to play those 82 games, whether Michael was there or not. So, um, you know, we didn't see him. The team actually didn't want him to play uh, that the rest of the season. Michael kind of accused them of, of um, doing that so they could get a better draft pick. But, but they really weren't. The, um, the team doctors had told them that, that, that there was a chance with this injury where, where the broken bone was that if he did it again, uh, he would never be able to play. And there was a 10% chance of that happening. And the team really didn't want him to play. And Jordan, was, he wanted to play. I mean, he was you know, a great competitor mm-hmm. and basically was already playing. He was playing pickup games back in North Carolina, unbeknownst to the team. You know, there's a famous story. They told him, well, there's a 10% chance, you know, you'll never play again if you break it. He said, well, that means a 90% chance I won't. So I'll take that odds. You know, Michael being a pretty famous gambler. But he came back and played, and initially they had him on a minutes limit, which was kind of troublesome. And, but by the time the playoffs came, that was over with. And as you say, had a 63-point play, you know, uh, game against Boston, the overtime game, but, but they ended up being swept. That, that was a great Boston team that um, won a championship. Probably as good a Boston team as there ever was, probably. I remember they were 40-1 at home that season in the regular season, and pretty unbeatable. Yeah, and they were obviously stacked with uh, three future Hall of Famers as well. Prior to the 1988 NBA season, as you mentioned, you started covering the Bulls full-time. Phil Jackson was named an assistant coach around that same time. I read that you also had a very brief, by chance, conversation with Phil when he was a, a Knicks player back in the late 1960s. However, as you said as well, your path has crossed professionally in the early 80s when he was with the CBA. Can you please talk about your relationship with Phil over the many years that has happened since? Well, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to uh, develop a friendship with Phil. He's one of the most unique people I've ever met. And as I said, I worked in Washington, D.C. and covered um, the White House and Congress for media and been in sports for a long time. And I have to say, Phil's probably the only person I've ever spent time with anywhere in all those times that every time I have a conversation with him. I come away knowing something I didn't before or thinking about something, more than more so thinking about something. Really, just a tremendously interesting uh, guy. Very shy, actually, and right. that's why he, he doesn't do a lot of media things. I mean, he, does, he did it with teams, and he would talk, but you know, he's in, he isn't kind of inherently a shy person and, and you know, doesn't like to be out in public, doesn't do autograph things, and doesn't do a lot of that. But again, I... Uh, I met him in, actually, I saw him that, that one time when I was at, at a Nick game, literally, I would run, back then, the, the players were, you know, more like, more like us other than the talent, as I said, but uh, they would take, Phil would take the subway in New York uh, back to where he lived in lower Manhattan, and I, and I lived in Brooklyn, and I would take the subway, so I ran into him one time after a game getting on the subway, <laughs> so I, I don't know, he, he said he didn't remember that probably it was a bigger thing for me than him yeah but then i yeah as i said uh, i got to meet him in the cba and then when he came to the bulls uh, i spent a lot of time uh, with him talking about basketball because he, he really was probably more instrumental in, in teaching me the game or even though i knew it you never really know it until you're around somebody who's who's experienced it like he's a, he has a, also a very bright guy and so um I spend a lot of time with him, asking him a lot of questions about the game and talking about plays and situations. And so I got close to him when he was with the Bulls, when he was assistant coach. And, um, you know, from there, you know, developed a friendship over the years. And 
when I go to LA, I'll usually have dinner with them. Probably I'll be out there next month, and I'll see them for dinner when I'm out there, and uh, email with them pretty much about once a month or every couple of weeks or something. Uh, so it, it's been uh, you know good fortune for me to have. Uh, it's always good fortune in your life when you get to run across and have relationships with uh, a lot of interesting people, and he's certainly one of them. Certainly, it's a long-lasting relationship which stretches well beyond basketball, which is great to hear as well. Yes. I've watched a lot of Bulls TV coverage of the Jordan era, even though I am in Australia. Aside from you and names like uh, Tom Dore, who was a former guest on my podcast, uh, Wayne right. Harvey, Dan Roan, uh, Rich King, Steve Cashel, Norm Van Leer and Lou Canellis, all those names come to mind. Can you please sure. spend just a moment talking about two of the all-time greats, not just in Chicago, but around America, Johnny Red Kerr and Jim Durham, and, and what your experiences were with those two late greats of the game? Well, they were a broadcasting team with the Bulls from probably the mid-70s, and, and to John, uh, Jim Durham left the Bulls after the first title in 91, and um, Johnny died a few years back. I was very close with Johnny. He had a long history in Chicago. Jim was from a small farm town. He just died suddenly, this shockingly, really, uh, late last year, I think it was. Uh, Johnny was sort of the, uh, was really a quintessential Chicago figure. Grew up in Chicago and led his team to a, a high school championship, played at the University of Illinois, the state uh, university. His first, uh, uh, first time they ever went to the Final Four was with him, and then he went to uh, Syracuse in the NBA. When he got drafted, they won a title his first year there. Uh, he was the original Iron Man of the NBA, played 844 straight games. The first game he missed was in his last season. The season was going to retire because the coach just didn't play him because his coach didn't want any more talk about his streak. So he ended it a uh, bad guy, basically. But then Johnny came and um, coached the uh, Bulls expansion team in 1966-67, and that's still the only NBA expansion team in, in the history of the league to make the playoffs. Uh, and then he became a broadcaster and really was a great ambassador for the game and, and, and for Chicago and you know, sort of the ultimate guy next door. He's, he was everybody's friend. From what I know about, I've never been to Australia but from what I know from Luke Longley and, and the Australian players who've been through the NBA, he was a guy Australians would love because Johnny was a guy who'd, who, who'd uh, sit down and have a beer with anybody and you'd feel like you, you were his best friend. And, uh, you know, Jim Durham was just one of the great broadcasting pros in the NBA, great love of the game, went on to uh, be a national broadcaster for ESPN after he you know, worked with the Bulls and, yeah, it's a great loss for uh, not to have either of those guys around anymore. Sure is, and definitely both their voices are synonymous with some amazing Michael Jordan moments, but also just NBA moments in general, and they're very sadly missed to this day. I reread your excellent book, The Jordan Rules, prior to our chat today. In a passage about the shot, Jordan's Game 5 Heroics versus Cleveland in 1989, you describe a fascinating moment where Doug Collins begins drawing up a play for Dave Corzine in that final timeout with just three seconds remaining. Can you please describe what happens next, just perhaps minus the expletive? Yeah, well, it, it, Doug was, you know, because everybody expected Michael to get the ball, Doug was thinking about, you know, maybe we should run something, you know, to get a good open shot, you know, because they're going to be doubling and tripling Michael Jordan. And Michael stopped that right away, and he said, just get me the ball. I'll take care of it from there. And... 
you know, it's some, it's something that, that we've overheard in huddles quite a bit over the years, but that was, you know, such a really uh, seminal moment for the franchise because the Cavs back then were viewed as, as the team that the Bulls became. Uh, they were supposed to be the team of the 90s. In fact, Magic Johnson uh, that season, and they had a you know, great team with Mark Price and Brad Doherty and Larry Nance. Magic Johnson said this is going to be the NBA team of the 90s. Uh, played great team ball, and, and in fact, that season they were six and zero against the Bulls. I mean, the Bulls never even came close to beating them once, uh, one game that regular season, and the Bulls finished sixth that year uh, in the regular season. So again, you know, Jordan wasn't considered, you know, the player that we all knew him eventually became, and so uh, that really was was the beginning of the run. If, if if Jordan hadn't made that shot, you know, there's a chance that the Bulls, there's a pretty good chance the Bulls would have broken up the team. And would have traded Pippen and or Grant and would have made some major changes. And they ended up going to conference finals. They beat the Knicks the next round and then took Detroit, uh, eventual champion, the six games. And so that, that shot probably was the, the biggest shot in the history of the franchise, even though you know, Jordan won championships with other shots in 98 particularly. That, that one really set the, set the team on the way to you know, the six championships it would get. One of the most replayed moments in all of sports, for sure, and that's an incredible recount of what actually did happen just moments before the shot. Now, in Jordan's post-game interview with James Brown, following that game, he talked about some Chicago riders who had written off the Bulls in their first-round matchup. <laughs> what do you remember about the treatment that the Bulls actually received from the local press during that playoff series? Well, he was talking about three of us. I was one. <laughs> um, before, the, before the series started, as I said, Cleveland dominated the Bulls in that season. In the last game of the regular season, Cleveland came in to Chicago. Seating was set already. The Bulls played all their starters. Cleveland didn't play their starters, just played the reserves. And the Cavs won by 18 points or something. So it was, it was, hard, to, it was hard to even pick the Bulls. So there was three, uh, three of us riders traveling with the team then when the uh, riders always make picks, predictions before the playoffs start. And one of the riders pick three Cavs and three it was best of five then one picked four and I picked Cavs and five so before the game five it was two two in fact Jordan Jordan really messed up game four he missed two free throws at the end of game four would have won the game and and, and now the Bulls were going back for the, uh, the deciding game in Cleveland so it looked like Jordan had kind of choked away the series so anyway it was before game five and Jordan always had this ultimate confidence he never thought he would lose and so he's sitting on the scorer's table and right next to the bench where we were sitting, and he points to the guy who picked three, and he says, we took care of you. He points to the guy who picked the Cavs in four. He points to him, he says, we took care of you. And then he pointed to me, and he said, we take care of you today. <laughs> and they did. He's obviously very confident in his abilities and probably the greatest of all time in terms of being able to back up what he Yes, very confident guy. Yeah. Now, interestingly, in the Jordan rules, you mentioned that MJ almost considered attending the University of South Carolina or Clemson because they said he could be a two-sport player, basketball and baseball. Prior to MJ's first retirement in October 93, how much talk, if any, did you hear about his wants to pursue Major League Baseball? You know, we never thought he would, but there was talk. And in fact, I forget which summer it was. It was like 89. It was before they won a title. His father, he and his father, his father wanted him to try baseball. And he, he was pretty good when he was like 12 years old. I think he played in a, like a National Little League championship and pitched a one-hitter or something. 
but he was, so he was a very good baseball player as a, as a little kid, kind of got away from it into basketball. They made a contact in one of those summers, like the summer of 89 and the summer of 90, for him to play that summer uh, with a team in uh, somewhere in North Carolina, I don't know if it was Charlotte, uh, Wilmington, uh, there was a minor league single A team, and, and uh, uh, they were talking to him about playing in the summer there. Okay. And so, you know, they, he he had had that in the back of his mind for some time. You know, it se- it seemed like a fantasy, and none of us ever thought it would occur. You know, he he, he did, and of course, you know, with Jordan, he always used to talk about it and said, you know, how how good he would do. I never knew it was possibly looking at playing in some sort of minor league or. Uh, wherever it might have been in North Carolina there. So that's really interesting to hear. Thanks for telling me about that. Now, looking back, it's been over 20 years since the Jordan Rules was released. Your acknowledgement section at the back of the book eloquently details the background on the origins. Can you please just tell the listeners a little bit about the process of writing and researching for the book? You were clearly a, a well-credentialed reporter, but first-time author. Well, right. What I did know is there was a book written by one of my favorite authors, David Halberstam, who written a lot of great American history and political books and wrote several sports books. And he'd written a, a sort of an inside story of a team kind of book about the Portland Trailblazers back in the late 70s. He happened to uh, pick the year with, to be with the team after Bill Walton got hurt. So it wasn't a big seller type book, but I, I'd read that at the time and it always it had been in my mind that I really never had this great desire to write a book. It was more like, I'll give it a try because I, I, I think I could do that. It didn't seem so hard. It was just, it was like a story, but, you know, longer. <laughs> so so I, I just thought, you know, I'd like to give that, a, give that a try, see if I can do that. And it, it was just because I liked this book so much, I, I was going to try to pattern it after that as much as I can and write Great book to show the way Halberstam did by getting on the inside of the team, and I could because I, I traveled with the Bulls. Uh, we tra- they traveled commercial aircraft then; they didn't have private aircraft back there in the eighties, and so I was with them all the time. I was on the planes with them, pal, team bus, all the places media cannot be anymore. Uh, you never, you never see a book like that again, not, not because nobody could do it, but nobody would have the access that I had back then, or any of us really had, and so. Yeah, that's sort of what I just set out to do. And the newspaper, and then I would go to dinner or hang out with one of the players, and and you just develop background information, traveling around, do interviews, and, and so I would usually be about a couple of months behind on the book. You know, it's like I was, if it was January, I'd be talking to the guys about what happened in November, going back over situations and. So when the season ended, and they, they they ended up winning, and we went through the finals until the end of June, and then I spent the summer uh, right pretty much right, finishing up the book. I kind of was right some during the season, and then I spent the summer finishing it up. Whilst the focus of the Jordan rules is Michael Jordan, it further increased my appreciation of guys like John Paxson, B.J. Armstrong, Bill Cartwright, and Horace Grant. To this day, do people still talk to you about what they gleaned from reading your book? It's interesting. I, I didn't write, want to write. I didn't really write a Jordan book, and I didn't really write a Jordan book. You know, it was you know supposed to be the diary of a king, which I feel I did do, but and I, and I didn't. <laughs> I'm, I wasn't looking for sales. I was just looking for the product. But when the 
publisher got a hell of it. They just named it for that, you know. But really, it was a it, it, like basketball, like the sport itself. It, it was a team approach, and and I viewed it as a book about a team and all these individuals who are interesting in their own right, just not as famous and talented as Jordan. And I, and I still, John Paxson's the general manager of the Bulls, so I. I see him. I, work, I write for the Bulls website now. And Bill Cartwright's been a good friend over the years. And in fact, he just took a job uh, coaching in Japan. Mm. Horace Grant, I keep in touch with. He's been a good friend over the years. He lives in California and retired. And Scotty Pippen uh, works for the Bulls on, on their business side as, as kind of a team ambassador, going out making appearances. So, you know, a lot of these guys are still around, and I see them and keep in touch with them. Cliff Levingston has some sort of a camp sort of situation, basketball camp in the Chicago area, and I talk to uh, Dennis Hobson sometimes. And so, you know, so I've managed to keep relationships, and um, I think, you know, the players understood and appreciated what I was doing. You know, that was, I was not to embarrass anybody, but just to write a story about, you know, what it's like to be on that team at that time. Well, there's some fascinating insights into all the players on the roster at that time, and I was fortunate to speak with Dennis Hobson as well a few episodes ago on my podcast, and he was a, an interesting story with the background with New Jersey and obviously being a, a superstar pretty much at Ohio State, right. having to adjust to life on the bench for the Bulls was quite a different contrast for him. There's numerous legends of the Chicago basketball scene that didn't take up residence with the Bulls when they turned pro. Isaiah Thomas, Mark Aguirre, and Nick Anderson come to mind. I'm sure you had some opportunity to see these guys play before they joined the NBA. Can you please talk a little about the notable players that hailed from Chicago area at that time? Well, you mentioned probably the two best. Isaiah Thomas was, uh, you know, we make the division of basketball about little men. And, and he, you know, because he was, I don't know, 5'11". I don't think he was six foot. Isaiah was the best, the best player of that size. Uh, to me, and I think to many others in the history of the game, just just an extraordinary player uh, who, who could do everything and learn what it took you know, to be a team player and, and to take a team to a title because you know he's just such an extraordinary scorer, you know, guy who could, could do pretty much anything with the basketball, you know, play and beat guys, you know, all star players, you know, much bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mark Aguirre, who Isaiah was close friends with, played at DePaul in Chicago. Should be to me. Should be in the Hall of Fame. I I, I hope he eventually will be. You know, he did play on two championship teams when I say in Detroit. If he'd have stayed in Dallas or and stayed a scorer, because he gave up a lot of his game, you know, to fit in with that Detroit team, um, would would have been one of the great scorers ever. I mean, he, he was an unstoppable post scorer. Uh, that he he get out and post sort of like like Adrian Dantley, uh, but better with a smooth shot. Just, just, uh, just a, a tremendous talent to watch. You know, you know, those two guys were just really extraordinary players, and you know, to me, pretty much head and shoulders above. In Chicago, you know, any great players you mentioned. I think you mentioned Nick Anderson, Terry Cummings from there, but uh, Mark and Isaiah were, were just really special players. Good to hear a bit of background about them as well, and what do you think? Now, before we touch on the NBA of today. Is it possible to choose an enduring moment that stands out above all others from your time covering the Jordan era Bulls? I don't do. I don't really get into that because it's sort of like, you know, your favorite kid. You know, you don't want to your favorite child because you really don't have one. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoyed all the moments as they occurred. The, special, the most special uh, to me was with the first title because 
you know, it had been such a such a trial, uh, losing three times to Detroit, you know, tremendous disappointments, bitter losses, you know, and when you when you lose like that, you know, and then overcome and beat the team that had been beating you, nothing sweeter, and and so the you know the the feeling and the scene in Los Angeles, especially being able to do it over a legendary franchise like the Lakers was probably the, you know, I enjoyed it the most for seeing how much the Bulls enjoyed it. They certainly seemed to be reveling in it once they had sealed the title in Game 5 there in LA. Tomorrow, the Bulls host the league-leading San Antonio Spurs, who are 9-1 in their last 10 games. What are your thoughts on the matchup? Well, I, I, I kind of don't, don't quite know what to make of it because Duncan and Zobley are not playing. You know, for Chicago, Henrik's not playing. Noah, kind of so he, he may play or may not play. So and it's one of those games, you know, both teams are good defensive teams. They probably have two of the most committed uh, systems of play in the league, uh, most disciplined defensively. So it, it's a great game to see. And obviously, of course, Derek Rose is not back yet. So mm-hmm. it's not meaningful in, in the sense of only, I think it'll be, you know, as it is when those two play, teams play, you know, two good teams that play hard, but still missing a lot of key pieces. Speaking of possibly missing pieces, what do you think about Noah's chances of actually lacing up and playing in the All-Star game next week? It's, uh, is his injury going to have quite an impact on whether or not he actually does? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's he, you know he's left open the possibility that he, he won't play. Uh, I'm sure he'll go. He'll be there. Uh, you know, Joe likes people and Joe likes parties. And the All-Star game is both, so... Yeah. He'll be there. I hope, I hope he gets out to play, at least for a little bit. Lou Dang had a minor injury uh, last year, and he played about. He came and played about six minutes. So I, I do expect him to, to try at least get out there and play a little bit. Uh, you know, if his foot is still bothering him. I mean, it's it's a bigger concern for the Bulls because if it's his foot is still bothering him to the point that he can't play in that game, and it doesn't really particularly bode well for them for the rest of the season. Yeah, that's true. Now, speaking of Derek Rose, I know it's obviously a merry-go-round and it's a question that you hear time and time again, but what is the latest on Derek and his activity with the team in terms of practice and when do you think the slated return may in fact happen? It's a hard one, obviously, in part because there's been no determination made by the team or the doctors telling the team when they think he can or should play. Um, the original diagnosis dates to 12 months when he got hurt at the end of April. He had a surgery May 12th of 2000. So we're just at uh, like nine months now, so we're in the early part of it. Uh, he's going through kind of walkthroughs with the team, but he's really not practicing uh, because they don't scrimmage. Kind of little known that uh, Thibodeau, because he, you know, they play uh, so hard and big minutes that he tends to lighten up in practice, and, and they have long practices. They go through a lot of plays and things but they don't go through scrimmaging. So I think it's 50-50 whether Derek even plays this season, partially because if you see the other guys who have had that same injury around that same time, uh, Ricky Rubio, Iman Shumpert, Eric Maynard, uh, Rubio just now, just back in, just in the last week, has started to be productive. And this is like he had, he had his surgery, I think, in January. Uh, so this is like 13 months since his surgery. Yep. And Schumpert, who, who had injured the same day as Rose, had his surgery about two weeks before Rose did, has, has 
struggled a lot. And now the, he was starting for the Knicks, and now they're thinking of taking him out of the starting lineup and playing him less because he's struck. So it's just uncertain if you look at the evidence around of those guys who had this injury and whether it even makes sense to bring Derek back this season. I think the team is thinking about, you know, if the doctors say, he's, say he won't hurt himself further, I think there's a chance he might come back in mid-March. But I really wouldn't expect anything before that. Mm, okay. Well, thanks for that insight there. And perhaps in the short term, they may just be best to ride off the rest of this season so that he can come back as close to 100% the Derek Rose that we know at the start of next season. Yeah, that's what I would would prefer, but nobody's asking me. Yeah. I'm just, like everybody else, I'm just waiting and watching to see what happens. Yeah, well, there's a lot of interest, and we'll obviously keep following it closely as the months go on. Now, Peter Vesey, legendary reporter and columnist, and was also a recent guest on my podcast, he tweeted a fortnight or so ago about the possibility of Phil Jackson becoming the front office face of a Seattle franchise should a deal be done to lure a team from Sacramento. What is your take on this, given your strong ties to Phil? I think that's possible. He has a relationship with the people who have made an offer to buy the team. Yes. Who haven't been approved yet, and Sacramento is still trying to find an, you know, uh, a, somebody to purchase the team to keep it in Sacramento. So, you know, I think it's one of the things that Phil has some interest in, and it's a possibility, but it's a little premature because, you know, they haven't worked out a deal yet. Sacramento are still trying all they can to keep the team there in California, but in the event that it was to perhaps happen, then Phil may be one of the leading candidates for a role in that particular franchise. Yeah, I can see that. He's not going to be coaching again. but I mean, he, And he should have had that role with the Lakers. They promised him that, kind of a mentoring thing for their coaching staff, front office, and then they reneged on a deal. So I think that's what he's interested in, and I think that's what he'd probably pursue. And... I think, you know, in part because he has a relationship, you know, business, personal relationship with some of the investors trying to buy the new franchise, I, I just think it makes sense to suggest that, you know, that, that's a possibility. But I, I know he's talked to some other teams as well. Do you believe that his coaching days are certainly over? Yes, yeah. For him, it's, you know, he's closing in on 70 years old, and hmm. it, it's a grind to travel, you know, the United States all winter long. I mean, they, they, they stay, they travel privately, aircraft, they stay in first-class hotels, but it's still, you know, for instance, it was just uh, two feet of snow on the East Coast and all the flights were canceled and, and every, you know, but so you had to make alternate plans. It, it, it's glamorous as it sounds, and it is glamorous, obviously, but after you've done it for so many years and he's done it for 40 or so, it, it, it it wears you, especially, you know, Phil's had hip replacement and knee replacements, and it's just it's just too difficult a thing, and thankfully I'm going to try to do that again. Now, can you please talk a little about your Hall of Fame induction last September? An amazing honor. Uh, how was it? I, I have watched your Hall of Fame speech up on YouTube. Yeah. It was a really honest speech that you gave, and obviously you were quite choked up, understandably. So can you maybe just talk a bit about that induction there, please, Sam? Well, it was a great honor. <laughs> None of us, you know, like the players too, and I've, I've been to a lot of Hall of Fame inductions over the years. We all get into something like this, whether it's the players playing or somebody like myself, the writing, you know, because of the passion we have and the love for the job. You know, then to be honored, you know, at that level for something that you are just grateful to be able to do and grateful to be around all these years and have the opportunity 
it's just one of the most special things you could have, you know, in, in your life because you know, it's not it's not something you've ever it's not something you work toward or or, or think about or, or or want to do. You're just you know grateful, overwhelmingly grateful to have the opportunity uh, to be involved, and then you know to be honored for something that when your kids would do for nothing basically is uh, is that's why it's all the same things you hear. Uh, I always hear so many people say how speechless they are because, you know, it's hard to find words, uh, you know, for that level of honor. So it was, it was just a great uh, good fortune. A tremendous honor. Now, Sam, it's been fantastic chatting with you today. Thanks so much for your wonderful insights into the game of basketball and congratulations on what you've achieved thus far. All right. Thank you and good luck. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. Please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash InAllAirness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.